Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, we are honored to be joined by Sandra Postel, the 2021 Stockholm Water Laureate and author of Replenish, The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. Sandra Postel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Sandra, I'd like to spend the first part of our show talking about some of the basic concepts in Replenish and then narrow our focus to New Mexico and the American Southwest. But first, congratulations on being selected as the 2021 Stockholm Water Laureate. That is an unbelievable honor. Well, I have to say it, it really is. It, it was a total surprise to me to get that call from Stockholm, as you can imagine. And uh, Was it in the middle of the night? <laughs> yeah, it was not, thank goodness. No, it was, it was in the late morning, as I recall, but it, I'm incredibly honored by it. It's just nice when you've been working on something for decades to have some validation that maybe you've made a difference after all. So I, I really have been very honored by it. It's, it's truly the honor of a lifetime for me. Well, I mean, it, I, I actually wasn't that familiar with the award, and I didn't realize that that's really the analog to being a Nobel laureate. You, it's a, I mean, traditionally, it's a presentation by the king, and there's 700 people wearing tuxedos, and I'm just wondering if, if that's actually going to happen this year in COVID, or, or, or will it not? Actually, unfortunately, it won't happen in person. I'll be meeting the king on Zoom uh, in, in August for the, for the ceremony. I'm still trying to figure out how I can do the appropriate bow on Zoom. But, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I'm looking forward to that. He's apparently very interested in the environment and, and water, so I, I look forward to engaging with him in any way I can. It'll be fun. In the Stockholm Water Prize Award that you received, um, your book is cited as one of the reasons for the award. And the, the title of the book, Replenish the Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity, to me really sort of captures your thesis. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that thesis, about the, the reason for that title. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, the... We're used to thinking about water you know, as a resource, you know, and I think we sometimes have to go back to the basics with water and recognize it's the source, right? It's the source of life. And so the idea of replenish is that, yeah, we've had this amazing run of incredible engineering, you know, dams and diversions and levees and all kinds of, you know, engineering infrastructure that has been very, very beneficial to us in many, many ways. But when you look at the freshwater cycle, the water cycle, the basis of life on the planet, we've actually disrupted that in very fundamental ways. You know, dams provide hydro, water supply, irrigation, flood control, recreation, very, very valuable benefits, but they're blocking rivers. You know, we have 60,000 big dams around the world that are literally stopping the flow of rivers and capturing that water in reservoirs. Again, many benefits for us, and yet for the river, it's not really behaving like a river. And so the idea of replenish is to ask the question, you know, can we have human prosperity and a healthy water cycle at the same time? Yeah, and and my, I, I'm sorry, yeah. I was struck in reading your book about the optimistic tone of the book because I mean, you don't sugarcoat the negatives, but you also seem to feel that 
that it is possible to, to use your word, replenish our water supply. Absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, the, the challenges are huge um, and we've got a lot to do, but I, I came away feeling from the research I did for the book, realistically optimistic, you know, because, and I say that because for every challenge out there, whether it's related to groundwater or the health of soils or rivers, um, what have you, we can point to solutions that are working um, in some part of the world, in some part of our country. In most cases, we can point to solutions that are working, which means if we can learn from those, modify those to, to the geographies that need attention, we can, and scale them up, we can solve these problems. So that's, that's where the optimism came from. It was, it was realistic. So another part of your, your work that, that I noticed, at least in the book, is that you're actually, you've actually been on the ground. You actually investigated these things that work, and you have determined that they do work. In other words, you're not reading about it or just thinking about them. You're actually seeing them happen. I saw many of these examples, yes, on the ground. I wouldn't say all of them because I have many in the book, um, but I saw many of them on the ground. And they're very powerful examples. Um, you know, whether we're looking at, at restoring flow to rivers or recharging groundwater or what have you. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a great book to research. So the, I guess the hard thing to accept uh, as a layman, um, you know, we're moving from 8 billion to 10 p- billion people in uh, 2050. The, 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 pe- the people of the world are getting richer. There's going to be increasing demands on water and on the water supply. We know that uh, climate change is happening and there's more evaporation. So, so in general, it, it seems sort of hard to believe that though there's going to be enough fresh water. It's a very good question, and I believe there is enough fresh water, but we have a lot of adjustments to make. Uh, If we're an average American, um, we use about 2,000 gallons of water every day, right, just to keep our our lifestyle afloat. Half of that is in our diet. About a third of it is in our energy use, about 5 or 10% in our computers and clothes and all the things we buy, and then 5 or 10% at home. And so if we look at those opportunities to shrink our personal footprint, there are many, many, many of them. So that's one key thing is to live productive, healthy, happy lives, but consume less water every day. And we can do that. We know we can do that. But again, education and getting more people involved is important. And then the second thing is to fix that water cycle, is to get more efficient in our use of water, actively replenish those aquifers and actively replenish those rivers. Um, And those are the two big things, shrink the footprint, restore nature. And I I believe, again, my research shows that we have a long way to go in using water more efficiently. We've barely tapped out conservation and more productive use of water. So the solutions are there. So you, you have two really, you have two data points you put in the book that really jumped out at me. One was the amount of water it takes to make a cotton shirt. And the other one was the amount of water it, it takes to make a hamburger. And I wonder if you could relate those to us. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it, it, you know, a cotton shirt, we, you know, we, we, we have probably, what, a couple dozen of them in our drawers, right? We don't really yeah, think about Yeah, I have more, unfortunately. More, unfortunately. And, you yeah, know, they're wonderful to wear. But it can take up to, you know, 700 gallons of water to make one cotton shirt. And the reason is not what's going on at the factory. The reason is it takes a lot of water to grow almost any crop, including cotton, in the field, crops are thirsty, and they transpire a lot of water as they grow. So, so that's, that's a good bit of the reason. Um, we can certainly irrigate that cotton more efficiently using drip irrigation rather than less efficient methods, but it's, it's a water-intensive thing. And, and it's not to, you know, it's not to uh, you know, get down on cotton shirts. They're not bad. It's, it's more to the point that everything we use and wear and buy and eat takes a lot of water to make, sometimes a surprisingly large amount. And it's all hidden. Like, you know, we don't see that water when we pick out the cotton shirt, but it's a lot of water. It's, it's more than most of us use in a week at home. So it's, it's, it's just information. And same thing with our diet. You know, you mentioned the hamburger. A commercially produced hamburger, you know, can take as much as, you know, 630 gallons of water to 630 make. 630 gallons to be... One hamburger? For one hamburger. Now, that's a commercially produced... uh, I I have an extensive section of my book that's dedicated to the idea of managed grazing of cattle and restorative grazing with cattle. And you can actually replenish the soil and improve the landscape, improve habitat for birds and other wildlife if you manage cattle differently. And we have a number of good examples of that right here in New Mexico. Uh, one of them is a ranch that I wrote about down in Corona, New Mexico. Um, and so, you know, again, I don't want to get down just on hamburgers. I think we can look at our diet. And certainly meat is one of those areas. If we reduced our red meat consumption, our footprint could go down dramatically. But there's also a way to produce beef that is actually quite beneficial to soil and to, and to the landscape. So I, I want to make that very clear. Well, I want to come back to that in a second, but let me just mention first that this is uh, New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today the 2021 Stockholm Water Laureate, Sandra Postel. I'd like to sort of try to put um, the idea of replenishing in context of New Mexico. Start with just your general idea about where we are in general, in New Mexico. Overall, we're going to be getting drier. And a good bit of that is due to temperature rise. As the temperature goes up, and we've already seen about a two degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature, you're going to get more evaporation. And so even if you have normal, quote unquote, normal rainfall, historically more average rainfall, you're going to have less water available because more is evaporating. And so even without a change in precipitation, you're going to get less available water but then you add changes and expected changes in, in precipitation, including less snowpack, and then potentially changes throughout the year that are producing less water availability, then you have you know, a state of long-term aridification. We're going to be drying out, so to speak. And so I think we need to kind of come to grips with that in the Southwest, including in New Mexico, and begin to adapt to that. You know, we, we all value our, our water, our rivers. We value agriculture. We, of course, value, you know, water in our homes. 
And I think recognizing the data and where it's going and begin to really adjust to what's coming is going to be key. And I, I really think New Mexico has some advantages here. I mean, we're going to be dealing with, as I say, some very tough challenges. But we have, you know, the benefit of, you know, three very distinct and different cultures around water, the Native American culture and, and history with water use, the uh, Sakia systems that are in, still in use and, and very valuable here in New Mexico. And then, of course, the, you know, the water rights on top of that, the um, more Western water rights, if you would, um, approach. And so, But they're perverse, right? They, they actually encourage overuse, don't they? They can sometimes encourage overuse. The, you know, one of the, the most difficult things is the use it or lose it yes. you know, maxim, is that if you don't use your water right, you can, you can lose it. But again, we're finding ways to work around that you know, by establishing water banks and water leasing programs. And I'm talking again about the West. And I think it's important to look to what other states are doing and see what might work in one's own state. And here we are in New Mexico. So we can look at what other states are doing and say, hey, that could work here. We might, we might want to pilot that idea. We might want to try that idea. And, and I, think, I think that's a very important thing to do um, is to, you know, to begin to not start from scratch, but see what's working elsewhere, what might work here, and, and give it a go. So one thing that I think you talk about in the book is actually the way uh, municipalities have really done well in the Southwest. And I think you mentioned Albuquerque in particular. Uh, but what I didn't realize was that most of that gain, that per capita, the decrease in per capita usage, was actually due to H.W. Uh, Bush's uh, new water standards in, from 1993. It's not so much that we're all more conscious of using less water, which we are, but it's, these, it's the whole uh, uh, water efficiency standards that really made a big difference. They did make a big difference, and, I, and it's really both. Um, and let me just talk about that for a second, because it's really important. So back in uh, 1990, uh, at the tail end of the first Bush administration in 1992-3, uh, we passed energy efficiency, an energy, an energy act that included water efficiency standards. And it basically told all manufacturers of toilets, faucets, shower heads, plumbing fixtures, that they, they needed to meet certain new standards of efficiency. Um, and this has had a dramatic impact um, on our water use at home, in our schools, in our offices. You know, when I was a kid, it took at least five gallons of water to flush the toilet. You cannot buy a toilet now that takes more than 1.6 gallons to flush. That's a big difference, right? Every time we're flushing the toilet. And so, and then um, in addition to that, there was a a program called WaterSense uh, that the EPA launched about 14, 15 years ago that basically helped you understand when you go to buy a new dishwasher or a new washing machine, which of those products is water and energy efficient. And so when you combine those two, the legislation that asked plumbing manufacturers to get more efficient with their appliances and fixtures, and this voluntary labeling program that helped consumers make a wise choice in their appliances, we're saving 9 billion, that's with a B, 9 billion gallons of water a day compared to what it would have been had we not had those programs. 
And you and I haven't had to make any like behavioral change to achieve that. We just buy the product that that's there. And so that's, that's 9 billion gallons of water every day that's remaining, you know, in a river, in a stream, in a lake, or serving some other purpose. So it's been enormously beneficial. And then you have programs like Albuquerque has done, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and other places, you know, helping us to use our water better at home. So um, especially outdoor water use in the West is very, very important. You know, not having that green lawn that takes so much water to irrigate, but using native landscaping that are, you know, also good for our native um, birds and, and, uh, and, and wildlife, and so to speak. And so, you know, they have multiple benefits, but has saved a lot of water. So, you know, before Albuquerque began its water conservation program, it was clear that the groundwater levels were declining. Um, and, and this caused a major concern and really kind of, you know, launched this major water conservation effort. And now our groundwater levels have actually come up in, in recent times. And so they're using, you know, the city has been able to use some of the water coming in from the Colorado River system, you know, the, the, uh, the, that water that we get from our share of the Colorado Basin to help recharge that groundwater supply. So you combine that recharge with conservation and you're in a much better you know, situation than you would have been otherwise. And we can point to a number of cities that are doing excellent work on water conservation here in the West, Albuquerque being one of them. What I understand is that basically 80, up to 85% of our freshwater use in New Mexico is in agriculture. And so I want to talk to you about that because I think people will really get the, the flavor of your innovative ideas when we do that. But let me mention uh, that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and we're honored to be joined today by Sandra Postel. Sandra is the 2021 Stockholm Water Laureate, uh, and she's written a book which I hardly recommend called Replenish. And Sandra, you, you mentioned briefly uh, sort of how the virtuous cycle could work with cattle. So let, let me just start with uh, crops. And one of the things, one of your phrases is more crop for the drop. And But you go into really what regenerative uh, farming can do and what a difference it can make and water use and in climate change and all kinds of things. So I'd like you to perhaps explain that to us and really contrast the, the sort of traditional way of farming with, with tilling and plowing and what, with what you recommend. Yeah, and I have to start out with a bit of a confession. You know, I've been working on water issues, global water issues for, you know, 35 years or more. And I, through much of that time, throughout much of that time, I paid way too little attention to the health of the soil as an important water reservoir. Um, you know, I, you talk about rivers, groundwater, lakes, and so on, but I had not paid enough attention to the soil reservoir. And when you look globally, soils can hold eight times as much water as all rivers combined. So that's hard to imagine as a layman. Yeah, I mean, rivers are flowing, but if you look at the amount of water that's in those rivers, right, and compare it to what the soils are able to hold in, in a moment in time, eight times more wow. in, in, in the soil reservoir than in rivers. And so 
So that tells us that we can manage soils better, manage them for that reservoir, and that produces all kinds of other benefits. So, for example, we, you know, we have traditional conventional agriculture being focused on tillage and turning over the soil and plowing up the soil. Well, that creates a lot of wind erosion, a lot of water erosion, and it depletes So just explain health. tillage for somebody that's not familiar with farming. Yeah, I mean, you're turning over the soil and, um, you know, exposing the soil to the air, which makes the soil, the water in that soil evaporate. But the idea was um, you need to do that to plant the seed, right? And you're also compacting the soil, you know, at the same time. And so you're, you're, you're losing that um, porosity in the soil that, that allows the soil to hold moisture. The other thing is, you know, we, we've been using chemical fertilizers um, to a large degree rather than trying to replenish the fertility of the soil in a more natural way. So one of the things that is, that is increasingly viewed as beneficial in regenerative agriculture is the planting of cover crops. And these are crops that are often non-commercial. So when you've, when you've finished your harvest um, of your commercial crop, rather than leaving the soil barren, right, you plant a cover crop to take it through the, the, the winter season or the non-production non season. And those, those cover crops help to keep the soil in place. Um, they add carbon to the soil, which expands the soil reservoir. Uh, the, the, the scientific data suggests that for every uh, one percentage increase in carbon in the soil, so if you go from 3% carbon to 4% carbon, you might be able to store an extra 20,000 gallons of water per acre. So, so how, do the, in how that does soil. it add carbon to the soil by planting a cover crop? Well, you're putting, you know, those, those cover crops are, are photosynthesizing and, you know, there, there is a root structure that's obviously attached to the crop and it's adding, depending on what your, what your cover crop is, you know, it's adding nitrogen to the soil, you're adding organic carbon to the soil, and all of that improves the health of the soil. So, and so but if you have a cover crop there and now you want to plant, how do you, pl can you plant just right miss your cover crop or how, how how's the stuff you want to grow going to grow if there's already a crop there well then you can either harvest the cover crop um i actually live here in, in corrales and we actually lease one acre of land to organic farmers here in corrales and they planted a cover crop this past year and then brought in some goats to actually eat the cover crop add some manure some natural fertility to the soil their hooves are actually kind of, you know, tromping up the soil a little bit and increasing that porosity of the soil. And that's much the way managed grazing works. They were, they were not allowed to just roam around. Basically, you had a fence that kept them concentrated. When they finished eating that area, you move them to the next area. And then the soil is healthier as, as you move through that, that field. And that's very much the way managed grazing works. It's a very intensive process. The, you know, the cattle are in one area for an extended period. When they've eaten the grasses there, they move to the next area. You, you know, the, the rancher moves them to the next area. And, and then that soil is healthier as a result. We have now, what's interesting to me is that the National Audubon Society actually has a bird-friendly beef certification that they give to ranchers who are doing this managed grazing practice in such a way 
that the natural grasslands come back. Um, and so you're, you're building habitat back for grassland birds, which is one of the most at-risk birds, um, you know, that, that at-risk class of birds that exists. And so it's a very, very um, multi-beneficial thing to do. Is to I, actually, I got such a kick out of you. In your book, you talk about cattle getting a bad rap, both when it comes to water and when it comes to uh, how, how land is treated. And I wonder if you could just explain that a bit. Well, yeah, we, we give cattle a bad rap, but it's not the cattle. It's how we're managing the cattle. Um, and if we manage cattle more like the way bison used to uh, run naturally on the range, we can actually get some of the same benefits. You know, if you think back historically to the way bison and grasslands uh, were in this very synergistic relationship, the bison would, as a herd, come and eat the natural grassland and then move on to the next one and not come back uh, to the previous site until there was more grass there to eat. And so if we do the same kind of intensive managed grazing of cattle, rather than letting cattle just roam free and degrade the land, we, we do that concentrated managed grazing. We've seen examples, again, right here in New Mexico, where that can restore the land. You've mentioned, you know, uh, regenerative farming, um, where, where you don't plow and till up the soil every, uh, and you, uh, in order in order to grow crops, you've mentioned rotational grazing, but those are almost like demonstration projects. They're not the typical way that um, that farming is done. And it seems to me like in order for your optimistic view to come to pass, these these demonstration projects have to be scaled up. It has to be much more common. And so, uh, can they actually be scaled up? And do you, and you think they will be scaled up? Farmers like and ranchers like like all business people respond to incentives, and so I think a lot of it has to do with the financial and economic and, and social incentives that farmers are experiencing. Um, you know, when I looked at the data nationally, something like six percent of our farmland nationwide it gets cover crops on it. And this is a hugely beneficial thing to do for all the reasons I just said. So that's tiny. 6% is really tiny. Right. And, and so we can scale that up with incentives. But our farm, legis our farm bill, right, the, the farm bill will be coming up for renewal in 2023. Um, one of the things we could do is push for more incentives for farmers to cover crop their land. I looked at the state of Maryland as an example because there you see that about 29% of their Farmland is cover cropped. Why? Because the state incentivized it. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Sandra Postel, the 2021 Stockholm Water Laureate. Thanks also to my producer, Tristan Klum. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki. My name is Stephen Spitz, and you've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.